Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. Jim Caputo, he's the vaccine team coordinator, the director of point of care testing, assessments coordinator. Again, you give him a job and he does it well. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Joel. Appreciate it. You got it. All right. So, hey, we're a family show. Let's get a let's get an origin story. Did you grow up here in Erie or are you a transplant in? I'm one of the muck bears uh, from south of Pittsburgh down in the Mine Valley. Oh, there you Came go. Came up in 94. <laughs> Love it. What did you call it? The up there's? The, I, I was told that we were called the Mup Thers. The like Mup, the Mup there. Yeah, that's, that's something there. I picked up in here. <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> little town called Manesson uh, down on Monongahela River in the still zone. I, t- I tell you what, uh, did school bring you here or did the job? The weather. What else? The climate. It was beautiful. No, I got to <laughs> tell you, you know, after coming out of graduate school, um, I actually planned on going south. Because we weren't the biggest snow fans, but I don't know. We, we came up here, loved the area. It was an absolutely fantastic area for a family. It had, like, all the stuff we were looking for. Our kids were, gosh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think here, probably in the five, six-year-old uh, type range. And it was just absolutely perfect. We, and we love it. We love the lake. We love the people. That's fantastic. Well, again, and and there's there, you know, there's a lot. I mean, there's there's a lot of Steelers fans. There's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of folks from the area there, uh, southwest, that move up to the northwest. All right, we want to we want you to lean in on your expertise here and get us an update. Uh, first okay. off, um, uh, you know, we just came off the county executive's press conference, and uh, in you know, there's just still this nagging feeling that we can't push it over the finish line as far as the level of vaccinations that uh, will, quote, uh, bring herd immunity to COVID-19. Is this an unachievable goal? It's a goal that kind of factors in one important point, which is in pharmacy, we call that uh, the one ingredient. It's called tincture of time. Uh, and so tincture of time, you know, we use that uh, in elixirs and the presence of alcohol as a tincture. Yeah. But, you know, if we had the ability to have a, an absolutely novel presentation of this virus that we had uh, a target to shoot at and knew exactly what it was and we could hit it and hit it very quickly, uh, you know, nature undergoes its mutations for every creature and thing that, that's out there that gives us the absolute perfect circumstance to avoid it. But because, you know, time and distribution and a lot of factors that go in there, you know, we have numbers that we could play around with statistics and say, you know, 100%, 90%, 80%, 70%, but it's the ability to achieve them in a, in a certain period of time. And we made an excellent, you know, the, the approach and, and a lot of the background work that was done on vaccines was foundational. And that's one thing that probably doesn't get recognized is it's research that goes back over a couple of decades. With creating right. We're a talking about this mRNA, you know, right. from original so, yeah. SARS, right? I mean. Right. And the deployment, the amount of work that took place between everyone working together on it and having honestly an open checkbook you know, in the pharmaceutical industry went went a long way. So being able to deploy that vaccine in December and January was great in that initial push. We did so great 
unfortunately, you know, we we hit a we hit a barrier there um, after a few months into it. If we would have gone with, if we, you know, there's a lot of ifs. If we had the ability to go at the rate statistically, we create the much better scenario of achieving a percentage. So to achieve 100%, if, if we achieve 100% vaccination today, it doesn't mean the same thing that 100% did in January, nor does 70%. So now they're a little bit different numbers. We have a lot of different targets now. Yeah, and the, and the concept of a breakthrough. And again, right. I've never heard of this. Again, all my kids got their their baby shots and you know we get our tetanus shot booster and right. all that stuff. Um, uh, what is a? I mean, is it? Are there? I guess there are measles breakthroughs, aren't there? Or there? Sure, and we and we've seen that. We see it with you know we see it with chickenpox, measles, mumps. Um, we see it with influenza. We see it, we can see it with any condition. You know, uh, even the newer vaccines like shingles and things like that. We have, and you know, typically when we look at them, we had a product of Merck had the. Uh, um, uh, the Zostavax product, which was a very good product, minimized eliminated mixture of both in individuals. Now we have a product called Shingrix, even better, less breakthrough. It's going to occur with every vaccine to a degree. It's going to occur with the rate at which the, the virulence of the organism has. We have a particularly virulent organism that has a very rapid reproduction cycle, and it likes to keep you know the change up with it. We we see the same thing with HIV. We see with retroviruses, you know that ability to evade detection uh, and and to evade treatment. We see with bacteria. And each one of these species has their their abilities, you know, based on their life cycle. Uh, but what amazing. we have done is minimize disease, you know, or minimize severity of disease and minimize death. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, the it still rings true that the vaccinated people that get a breakthrough infection, generally, unless they have, you know, really uh, deep comorbidities, like Senator uh, General Powell did, right? I mean, he was Correct. he was uh, ridden with cancer, unfortunately. Um, generally, you, you don't you you walk back out of that hospital, um, right? Uh, so, uh, all right, so. So we so we've got this vaccine. It, it's starting to it's starting to go now to kids. It's been twelve to eighteen, and now it's going to five to seventeen or five to eleven. I should five say. To 11. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? How does that look? What do you know? Uh, what can you tell parents and grandparents about all that? So you know, there's been a really careful assessment of each age group as we go into it, and you know, our, our typical public doesn't understand, or nor would they want to or need to uh, go through the whole drug and vaccine approval process. But what we want to do is, you know, we want to identify that primary population typically that we're aiming at in each case. And pediatrics, you know, uh, when we look at it, 75% of the drugs that we use in practice in pediatrics have really never been through a clinical trial. Uh, we typically, when we trial drugs, vaccines, we start with, as I tell my students, the, the healthy strappinest, most in, difficult to kill patients we could possibly find walking around, you know, mm. and then we work down the, down the hill from there to see what we want to do. You know, that's our most carefully guarded population, them and, and the pregnant lactating. Um, so we're going to start with that population, and that's what we did, the over 65. Uh, but the trials were absolutely extremely robust in, in content with, you know, in triple drug trials, uh, the drug that's approved on the market right now, 
the approval process usually only involves about five or 6,000 patients before that provider can write a prescription. In these cases, each one of these vaccines were trialed in over 35,000 people, each one of the manufacturers. So it's a tremendous effort. Uh, we start with the older population. We see what happens there. We use that for our dose study. We, we found, okay, here's where we were with it. We were able to select out that 12 to 16 or 12 to 18 population, depending on the, on the product, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. We look then at that data and see what happens. And unfortunately, a, a little bit of slowing of immunization. So we, again, we had a push uh, and a very nice surge of vaccinations in the 12 to um, 18 category when that was approved earlier this summer for that age category, but it wasn't quite uh, the general population amount that they would have liked to have. And, and we, we need to have a certain number of individuals to look at for both effect and side effect of, of something. So that's gonna be looked at carefully and dose finding is gonna be done. And so the data we see right now, you know, that comes out that, that forms this five to 11 data is based on what occurred in the previous population and what occurred in the previous. It took a little bit longer to collect it simply because again, we had that initial push and then we probably missed a few that could, and you know, there were some questions. And, and we'll continue to move in that direction. So where we thought maybe we'd get it in before school started, we're a couple months late, but we're still on track for something. Yeah. You, know, you know, I had always heard as a, as a dad that um, kids are not baby adults. Uh, they, you have to be careful with dosage levels and things. I always heard that about Robitussin, right? I mean, you can't. Absolutely. <laughs> right? So. Absolutely. So what. What what's in what's the dosage rate and is there any change chemically to these uh, uh, child versions of Pfizer and Moderna and so on? Okay, so what we end up doing, you know, and there are some general rules that are used in the absence of clinical trial data. So as you mentioned, for example, uh, you know, if we have a ten kilo child, we can't use one tenth of the dose of a one hundred kilo adult. And if we go by various measures, if we say we have a 10-year-old person, we can't give them one-fifth of a 50-year-old dose, but we have to have a starting point. So typically what we do is we use some of those as early starting points, body surface area, weight is an approximation of liver size, for example. You know, we look at things that would, any, any area that's going to handle something, uh, whether it be the kidneys, the heart, the liver, the whatever, wow. um, whatever organ is involved in it. And the thing about, you know, when we look at children and we look at all the stages that are developed from birth, you know, as neonates, uh, even going prenatally and then going forward in the age categories, we've established the zero to six months, the six months to a year, year two years, there are developmental changes that occur and there's maturation of various organ systems at various times. In order to find out what those are, we have to go with what we know about other products, other drugs, other things that have been developed and how they're handled, but then we have to look at this specifically as well. Some of the other markers that we look at are a little bit more difficult when we look at things like, now what's our immune system response to it? So we need to look, there are some factors that we can measure. We can measure antibodies, for example, as a relatively easy, I mean, you're not gonna do it at home, uh, but you know, then we have some other aspects of what we call it like the uh, uh, cell mediated immunity, which don't always give us the exact measure um, you know, fortunately for vaccines, we have products that are used once they're injected. When we see something that is, a, is an untoward effect, 
We typically see that untoward effect now, not manifest as something five or 10 or 20 years later, uh, which is different than drugs that we take chronically for conditions. Um, so we can, we can do that, but it's a matter of having the measures of being able to see what is the response. We can measure antibodies. Maybe we can't measure T cells in one particular case or a particular chemical messenger that's used in the body as they try to communicate these you know, immune system reactions and tell the body what to do and what not to do and how well to control it. Because the body you know, wants to mount an immune system uh, or uh, an immune reaction. But at the same time, we don't want the body to get too overzealous on that mission and then harm something else in another area or another tissue. And for that, really, we, we need that tincture of time. We need those things. But Again, we, we proceed, we proceed very carefully and cautiously um, with it as we go. And I think, you know, the FDA takes a very fast approach to it, but a very safe and cautious approach. So uh, what we've heard from the, re, uh, from the advisory board, the advisory panel, is that they've established that for the, the little guys, for the 5 to 11-year-olds, uh, at least, what is it, at least Pfizer is yeah. safe. Uh, to- that is correct. At, at the particular dosage that they'll be giving out. Right. I guess they're using the yellow caps or something. What's that? The That's exactly right. Different formulation, different uh, concentration and all. Mm-hmm. And the, you said the data is beautiful, huh? Yeah, the data looks very, very nice. And we we have to look at both aspects. We look at response data upwards of the 90 plus uh, rate. And then we look at adverse effect data. So we have to look at risk and benefit. And we, then we assess that. Jim, I, I want to pivot to the boosters. A lot of a lot of our older folks uh, now over sixty-five. Boom! You you just go in and get um, get the booster, and it's what six months right after you had your second dose. So right, the data we have collected right now tells us that six months is a good point to start with. In eight months or ten months or one year, we'll probably have again we'll have more data. But right now, based on the data we have, six months is pretty much our trigger point. Uh, for looking at it. And it's really based on, you know, the average person, as I tell, you know, my students in class, the, the average person doesn't really exist. They're really the sum of all these other things added together. So there are folks that have higher risk levels, folks with lower, again, there's going to be folks with higher and lower benefit levels, but we need a starting point. And that, that's have, a good spot to start. Have you us. seen a lot of boosters in LECOMs, long-term care facilities? I mean, you just kind of going around and, and giving the shot? Yes, we have actually, and I mean, it go again with consent and with, and with knowing what's going into it, but residents, you know, in, in long-term care for us, typically part of the package comes along with comorbidities. Right. Uh, so it's, it tends to be uh, something that really goes with things um, otherwise in the health uh, condition. And we don't have, um, you know, there, there's some degree of immunosuppression that comes with age, but it's not the same for everyone. Uh, so we have some individuals at 70 with a better immune system than some at 60, but we can't, unfortunately, we can't look at it. It's not like hair color. Uh, we can't pick it out, you know? Right. Um, the, the uh, so, so what's your recommendation as a pharmacist uh, uh, for those that are under 65, but uh, again, maybe check some boxes. Again, you think about the typicals, right? Yeah. Hypertension, COPD, um, uh, you know, obesity, et cetera. Right. And we look at anything that has the ability to alter immune status uh, and, you know, within their disease uh, course. And some of the things we don't uh, 
are uh, can be a bit occult, you know, when we look at them. Uh, some are very apparent. We looked at disease states where we have oncology population, HIV population, transplant populations obviously stand out tremendously. Um, but, you know, within healthcare, what we try to establish are uh, a category of risk benefit ratios based on how much can I, and it, it really, it, it's, it's, uh, it's healthcare gambling, I guess you would say. Wow. Uh, we, we look at when we look at it, we're, you know, we don't, we don't want to gamble with someone's life. And so we want to establish what possible benefit can they derive versus what possible risk would they have. Uh, there was an individual I spoke to, we were doing a facility, there was a healthcare worker that had had two doses of their primary series earlier in the year. Timing wise would have been probably about eight months out at this point. However, she was going to be undergoing a cardiac catheterization uh, in the next couple of weeks. You know, she asked for my advice in that case. You know, I would love to immunize her, but not two weeks before a cardiac catheterization. My vaccine is going to produce some inflammation in that situation. Inflammation is the core of her coronary artery disease right now. I don't want to turn that on right before that. Um, so I would seriously encourage anyone that's getting a booster dose, have a conversation with your healthcare provider. If you're coming in here to LECOM, we have folks that are trained in that, and we're going to sit down with you and have a conversation about it so that you're comfortable with it and have to make, make an educated decision. That makes a, a ton of sense here. All right, I've got less than five minutes with you, Jim, and I want to ask you about other drugs. And, and again, I, I am way outside of my comfort zone here as far as any kind of knowledge about it. But I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing these words that come up. So, again, mentioned at the, at the county executive's press conference, monoclonal antibodies. And, and mm -hmm. the question I have about that, because I hear that, that they're really good about if you can catch it early, it, it really stops uh, major hospitalization. But why does it seem to be so rare? Like, why does it seem like um, they're really rationing that? The uh, initially we had actually almost what you would call a bit of a surplus and that surplus probably occurred number one, just from the aspect of we had a new product that needed a distributional network for it needs some education as a foundation of how to use it properly. We are getting much better distribution of it right now we've heard some cases of rationing but of course I've heard we're rationing pumpkins somewhere in the country too but I've, I've seen lots of those too. Um, uh, it, is a, it is a bit short supply. It, like other antiviral treatments, what we find, you know, with a vaccine, we have the ability to prevent the disease process before it occurs. Most of our other medications we take for blood pressure, diabetes, whatever, we're stuck with them for afterwards. With antiviral medications, due to the speed with which a virus can enter and replicate, our treatments for everything, even a cold sore, which is another virus, involve getting to it very rapidly before it has the opportunity to spread. At that point, you don't always know what the severity level of the disease is going to be. So having a network and knowing how to get a hold of it is essential. We've not had a big distributional problem within our area. We've, we've given lots of doses to our residents and the other facilities in town have to, you know, HN and, and UPMC Hammett. But they do have to make a, a there's a, a, a necessary step that involves 
a, a contract with a pharmacy with a supplier to supply it, okay. and then the distributional means. It's not a very difficult product to administer, but it is important that we do that. And there's, you know, Merck has a, an antiviral drug that was used on some related viruses that shows some promise. But again, all these treatments are treatments that occur after that infection has occurred. And so they, you know, they come with a, a, a shakier foundation to work on, uh, but they're important tools. What is remdesivir? Is that the same thing? So no, that so that's another uh, antiviral product that's used, and again, based on antiviral properties. The thing about a virus, you know, different than a bacteria, is we have to be careful with our our targets. When we have antibacterial drugs, there's a lot of things bacteria hang out in different places and do things in a whole different way. But I describe a virus as the person that comes to your home that's like the guest that never left. Mm. Uh, they come and they, they're going to visit, but guess what? They didn't bring a toothbrush, underwear, dental floss, or anything else, and so they use all of yours. And wow. so they use all of our body's mechanisms and machinery in order to reproduce, to multiply, and, and spread. And in doing so, we have to be careful that we don't break our stuff while we're trying to break their stuff. So we have to key in on processes that are unique to them which are like cell entry, uh, cell exit, and some of the parts of their reproductive cycle that are different than ours. Bacteria are very different. Fungi are pretty different. Virus, they're really different, but they really function as a blueprint that they've laid out to use all your stuff, your dental floss underwear. They got your socks. They got them all. So you don't want to start burning your underwear. You'll get in trouble. We're going to have to leave it there. Jim, you are you are uh, a gem. I really appreciate how, how you really broke this whole thing down for us. And again, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of questions. We thought, like you said at the top, we thought we'd be out of this thing a long time ago. Uh, we're just enduring and we're trying to come together and people are doing their best. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we can actually do anything, but we, we certainly can. We can we can do those non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions too. Thank you, Jim Caputo. appreciate it very much, sir. Thank you. Pleasure being here. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com.